Welcome back to Horror Palooza, the Tom Atkins mustache of horror podcasts. This is episode number three. My name is Sir Ian Dangerous, also known as Uncle Frank, and I have been watching a horror movie a day all October and telling everyone all about it right here on this very show. If you are just joining me, I got to let you know I have a few rules for this marathon that I'm doing, this marathon of the macabre. My rule number one, it's nothing that I've watched in the last five years. Nothing I've watched in the previous five years counts towards this marathon. Rule number two, multiple movies from the same franchise count as one movie. So I can't watch Child Display 1 through 6 and have it all count. Uh, Number three, I have to have at least three languages represented other than English. So three foreign language movies, at least one film from every decade is rule number four. So I start my decades around 1950. So everything pre-1950 is one decade, and then 1950s, 60s, 70s, 80s, etc. I have to have at least one film representing each of those decades. Rule number five and six are fairly obvious. They must be horror movies, and they must be watched in October. So, so far, I have covered 14 of my 31 movies, which includes two of my three minimum required foreign language films. I watched The Wailing from Korea and Horrors of Malformed Men from Japan. And I've watched at least one film from the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, and 2010s, which means I'm missing the pre-1949 movie and the 2000 and aughts movie. Uh, So far, I watched Creature with the Atom Brain from the 50s, Horrors of Malformed Men, The Raven, and The Brain That Wouldn't Die from the 60s, Twins of Evil from the 70s, Howling 3 and The Gate from the 80s, The Resurrected from the 90s, and the 2000 teens I watched, Hold the Dark, The Girl with All the Gifts, The Wailing, Terrifier, Piewacket, and Winchester. So that means I've got one more foreign language film to go to meet my base goal, and those two decades I have to represent as well, the early 2000s and 1949 or earlier. So, before we get on with the rest of the show this week, I would like to once again thank my musical contributors, The Tiki Creeps and 414 Beg. Now, you can find them both on iTunes. You can also find The Tiki Creeps at tikicreeps.com, and you can find 414 Beg on Instagram as 414beg, 414beg. Of course, if you haven't yet, please subscribe to Horrorpalooza on your podcast app of choice. Thank you for checking us out. But please hit that subscribe button and leave a review and or a rating and share us with your friends. It's a great way to get this show out there. We're on the Orbital Jigsaw Network at orbitaljigsaw.com. And you can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and more. And if you like pro wrestling, you can check out Busted Wide Open, which is my other podcast where Nick Howell and I run down the, uh, the news and the hottest topics about WWE, New Japan, and everything going on in sports entertainment and pro wrestling. You can also find me on Twitter at Sir Ian Dangerous or at Skinless Wonder. So enough business. Let's get into the show and talk about movies 15 through 21. And then afterwards, I will give my top 10 best movies for the Halloween season, movies that get me in the mood for the holiday itself and ones that you can check out. Maybe they'll get you in the mood as well and if and where you can stream them. Also, we had some tweets this week about the movie moments that scared the, you listeners the most. And I'm looking forward to sharing some of those tweets as well. So let's get right into it and start off with 
day number 15 from 2016, I watched Lights Out. Uh, I can't believe I had missed this movie when it first came out. Uh, you can find it right now on Amazon and Vudu. You can rent it for 99 cents, which is, I think, a deal. Uh, this is a surprisingly good movie. I was shocked at how much I liked this. Um, Maria Bello, who I haven't seen in a while. I thought she was a little bit underused, but she's fantastic in everything she does. I was glad she was in this. Uh, great acting in this movie. Great atmosphere. Uh, there's a really nice family connection with these characters. You really feel the connection that they have. And they and one of my favorite things about it is these characters mostly make smart decisions. I think there's only one or two times where you go, no, what are you doing? Stop that. Um, you know, a couple of contrived moments. But overall, and especially in, in one or two cases I can point at specifically, they make really good choices that you sit back and go, okay, yep, that's... That is what I would do as well. Uh, as far as those, those contrivances, my nitpicks on the film, there were some, you know, like, a, like like for plot and visuals, they just were like, well, you know, it'd be cool if we had a black light and it would look really cool. And it doesn't really make sense logically when you break it down, but it does look really cool. But again, nothing too egregious. The, the plot is basically that there is a mother and daughter, they haven't talked in a while, and the kid brother... Uh, is now seeing things in the night that uh, make him think that his mom is involved with something, some sort of spirit or entity that is haunting their house. Uh, and the sister comes back to try and figure it out because she experienced a similar thing when she was a child. And uh, I'll just put it this way. There is a critter, and the critter is fantastic. I love the way that they handled it 95% of the time. I thought it was one of the more original uh, new modern horror movie monsters and the way that they shot it and filmed it was fantastic and along with Piwacket, I would say this is one of the only genuinely scary movies I've watched this year if you have a fear of the dark this movie will destroy you uh, it is really good at getting at, the, at that fear specifically uh, I, I thought that again my nitpicks a fringe, like a little bit of cheese and triteness to some of these characters. The main girl's played by by Teresa Palmer, and she's just so Hollywood edgy. You know, she's breaking away from her mom and she's living on her own. She's having a hard time of it. I mean, you can tell because she's got a, a a ghost poster on her wall. The band Ghost, and uh, you know, it's yeah, okay. Her apartment is spotless. She has an enormous apartment. Anyone who lives in L.A. knows this chick is at least pulling down two grand a month to be able to afford this apartment. So she's doing just fine. I didn't buy it at all. Uh, her kid brother is played by Gabriel Bateman. It's he's very he's a really good actor. But at the end of the day, we know really nothing about his character. He's just he's just kid brother, generic kid brother A. And her boyfriend is played by Alexander de Persia, and he's just kind of a milk toast. He's not, not very identifiable, but I did like the fact that they somewhat switched the the roles of boyfriend and girlfriend between the two of them. She felt more like in the boyfriend role and vice versa. So that was really nice and very unique. Uh, there's also an escalation point in this movie that I found genuinely exciting and intense. And I won't, I won't spoil it other than to say it's when uh, outside people get involved late in the movie and I thought that the way that they handled that was really cool and very fun um, the ending is a bit tacky I will warn you but it's nothing too bad as far as horror movies go I've seen way worse and overall I really did very much enjoy this movie if you're looking for a good modern genuinely scary movie 
lights out is a really good way to go. On day number 16, I watched World War Z, uh, which I had only ever seen parts of back when it first came out in 2013. Uh, it is, uh, you can currently rent it on Amazon for $2.99 uh, across most, most platforms of $2.99. And there are two versions out there. There's the unrated version and the PG-13 version. The unrated version, really, they, they say that they add all the stuff back in. It's at some points, it's just a matter of frames. They add back in uh, a few seconds here and there, sometimes even split seconds, just to make things more intense, to add a little bit more CG blood, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. It's a little bit bloodier, but it's not. It's nothing that's you know that much crazier. So, you know, if you if you do have some people who are sensitive to that kind of thing, then PG thirteen would be the way to go. If you're a little bit bit more of a gore hound, you can go for the unrated version. You're still going to see pretty much the same movie. It's going to be tough for me to discuss this movie without discussing its production and the final product and some of the plot points of the movie because a lot of my issues with this movie are are from that. And honestly, this movie is fine. There's nothing that egregiously wrong about it. It's a fine movie. It's very well made. But at the end of the day... You know, the more you know about the making of it, the more you realize how troubled it is, and you can see that between some of the scenes in this movie where they really didn't know where they were going with this, and it, it feels like they took a general idea from what was a very good book, and I may be biased towards the book. I try to set that aside when watching it and watch this as an individual piece, and it is too bad that it's called World War Z because. The, rel- the, the relativity that it has to the book, the relationship it has with the book is nearly nil. It doesn't, it, when you read the book, this doesn't feel like the same thing at all. It's a bit more of an ego project for Brad Pitt, which is fine. He's fine in it. And it is, in some ways, a very good zombie movie. Uh, the first two thirds, the first two acts, genuinely feel like something that should be called World War Z. It's it feels huge. It's some of the biggest zombie apocalypse stuff we've ever seen. And you really do see in a lot of moments that $180 million budget on the screen. What's unfortunate is that the story then completely falls apart in the third act where Damon Lindelof was brought in to to fluff the ending, to give them a new ending because the original was not going to work for them. And if you know Damon Lindelof, and he's a controversial figure when it comes to writing, uh, a lot of times he doesn't really land <laughs> the plane, if you will. And this is another case of that where the ending that we get doesn't feel like it belongs in a movie entitled World War Z. It, it, be- it belongs in another, any other generic zombie movie. There are you know, a very small amount of people in a lab trying to get something out of the lab where it's, that's infested with zombies. Whereas the rest of the movie is just thousands and thousands of people running and there's so many zombies that they're swarming on top of each other to pull down helicopters and and go get over walls, which is, I think, the, this film's one unique addition to the zombie genre is the swarming zombies uh, or the flocking zombies, which they have, which, as far as zombie history goes, is a debatably... Uh, positive addition you can like them or hate them and I think that they're effective sometimes and other times they're kind of silly but uh, it's at the end of the day this movie should be if you're going to call it World War Z it should feel like the whole world's involved and most of it is spent 
focused on Brad Pitt and what he's doing, which is very much focused about his family. And I understand from a storytelling standpoint, the need to focus the story around people that we can relate to, but the fact that there's not a more expansive cast uh, or that there's not more places that we go, we go to three different places other than the U.S., and only one of them do we actually feel like we're there uh, because we're actually put in the middle of a large recognizable city, and that's Jerusalem. Uh, but everywhere else, it's either dark or we're inside. So it doesn't really feel like we're anywhere else in the world. So there's a lot of nitpicks I could have about this movie. There's a lot of issues I have with this movie. Um, the ending compounds the whole problem of it not feeling bit like they tried to tack on an ending that feels big and it's just not. And I don't know if it needed that $180 million budget. They spent a lot of money on things that movies that have been done for a fraction of the price of this movie have pulled off and they just haven't had to throw all that money at the screen the way this movie did. So again, it's it's worth the watch. It is more action horror. It's very much of an action movie. But, at, but the third act, if you're getting into the action and the pace of the movie, it completely grinds to a halt in that third act, and it's, disapp- it's very disappointing. Uh, but still, it is a movie worth a watch. It was a successful film. A lot of people watched it. So check it out if you like World War Z. So coming up next on Day 17, I checked out 1997's Wishmaster. One word, Wishmaster. I am so sad I missed this movie. I I have never seen it before, and I am so sorry I have never seen it before. This movie is a lot of fun. If you like schlocky, late 80s, early 90s horror movies the way that I do, it is sometimes it's like TV movie quality, but it it has practical effects in this movie that are 15 years ahead of their time at least, and and just an incredible cast. I'll get into the cast in a second, but uh, I'll warn you right now when you check this out. This was the early days of digital effects, and it's back when they thought that they could just do anything. Hey, well, we don't have to do this. We'll just do it in digital later, and it would just look awful. And there's there's one scene in particular uh, involving a glass door. I'll let you watch the movie, and you'll you'll see what I'm talking about. That's just it's so laughably bad. But on the upside, the practical effects are amazing, and it's a really fun movie where you can tell that pretty much everyone involved is having a blast. Uh, the main girl is uh, played by Tammy Lauren. The character's name is Alex. And by the way, she chain smokes a lot, really hard for an athlete. I'm just going to throw that out there. Uh, and she's she's actually really good. I'm surprised she hasn't done much else. She was very solid in this. Her boss is played by uh, Chris Lemon, who's the son of Jack Lemon. And he just he's one of those guys who overacts so much. He knows what kind of movie he's in. And he's having a ton of fun with it. And the same can be say, said for uh, Andrew Devoff who plays the the Wishmaster, the, the djinn, the genie. Uh, he's fantastic. He really is good, and it's a pity he only played this character twice, this and the sequel. And he's also actually a really fascinating guy in real life. If you ever want to check him out, look him up on Wikipedia and what he does in his, like in the rest of his life. He's fascinating, speaks a ton of languages, involved in all kinds of conservation efforts. Interesting, interesting cat, and really good in this movie. Uh, it's directed by Robert Kurtzman, 
who founded KNB Effects, who you might know from The Walking Dead, The Mist, etc. Uh, he did leave after they worked on uh, the Sci-Fi Channel Dune miniseries in the early 2000s. So he hasn't been involved in KNB for a while, but he has his own effects group still, does a ton of stuff, involved in a lot of great pro- projects, and you can tell he knows what he's doing in terms of practical effects with this movie. Um, so those cameos I was talking about. This is a fun movie to watch if you're a horror nut. Because it's a who's who of horror movie cameos in this movie. Tony Todd, who plays Candyman. You had Angus Scrim, or at least his voice, and uh, Reggie Bannister, both from Phantasm, are in this. Buck Flower from Pumpkinhead plays a homeless guy. Ted Raimi, Sam's younger brother, is in this in a cameo for a hot second. You might know him from, from Evil Dead, but more likely you'll know him from Xena Warrior Princess as the little thief. Uh, let's see, who else? Uh, Joseph Pilato. Captain Rhodes from Day of the Dead. Choke on him. He's in this. Uh, and both Jason and Freddy Krueger in this movie. There's a cameo by Kane Hodder, who played Jason a bunch of times. Uh, he plays a security guard in this. And then Robert Englund, who played Freddy, is a featured character. Uh, there's also, uh, uh, you won't recognize him, but Vern Troyer, Mini-Me, is in this as well. You might figure out who he is when you see the scene. It's a ton of fun. It's a ton of fun movie. There's, I don't really need to explain the plot. It, there's, a, there's a jewel. There's a genie inside it. He wants out. He's going to answer. He's going to respond to a bunch of wishes. He's going to grant a bunch of wishes and then take over the world. And someone's got to stop him. That's the story. Boom. It's nothing too serious. It's good for just a goopy, you know, 90s romp, horror movie romp. It's a ton of fun if you like that sort of thing. I had a blast with this. Uh, very much recommended. Uh, but it's only on stars. Uh, if you if you have stars, you can get it for free. Otherwise, it's a two ninety nine rental, pretty much across the board. Uh, so, Wishmaster, check it out if you like that sort of thing. Day eighteen, we had the Crazies, the two thousand ten remake of the Crazies, not the George Romero original from the seventies. This is on iTunes for three ninety nine. You can rent this. Uh, Amazon for $7.99. Good Lord, you might as well just buy it for that. Uh, so iTunes is probably the best way to see this. It is obviously a little bit expensive, so it's going out of your way to watch it, but it's actually worth a watch. This is a slept-on movie. It feels like its era, you know, but not in a bad way. It's like that late 2000s era where a lot of American horror was starting to take cues from the French New Extremity movement. Uh, It's looking backwards a little bit at 70s horror, but it has these slick Hollywood production effects and uh, the camera work, and it undercuts the grimier elements a little bit, but it does still feel like that era of movie, and it's it's very solid uh, visually and and feels it feels it's a very strong movie in terms of its atmosphere and its uh, its overall cinematography. Uh, there's also really good acting from top to bottom. You've got Timothy Oliphant, uh, Rada Mitchell, and Joe Anderson as the main characters. The supporting cast is all really good. You know, a lot of times in horror movies, you have a couple of good actors, and then everyone else is just phoning it in. Everyone's good in this. No one feels ungenuine. It all is selling it very, very well. I think if I had to nitpick, the only flaw I could find is just how action horror-y it gets sometimes. Uh, where a lot of the movie you feel the stakes have to do with how vulnerable everybody is. And then other moments, they'll get into a fight scene or an action scene, and they rebound from just hideous amounts of damage. And uh, that's a, that can be a little bit silly. And some of the hide-and-go-seek tropes that they have in it, you know, it, have been done a million times, and it's a little bit slow in those 
moments, but those are complete nitpicks. Overall, I thought this was a very, very solid film. And I like the fact that in it, uh, it's, it is kind of a zombie film. It's a small town that gets uh, uh, a biological weapon dropped on it accidentally and turns people into these sort of zombies. And the military comes in to handle it. And I'll leave the, the spoilers at that. But I like the fact that we had a variety of people to be worried about. We had the zombies to be worried about. And then the military were also as scary, if not scarier, than the zombies. And on top of that, they did a really good job of dealing with the paranoia that everyone started feeling about each other is who's going to get sick and who's not. Uh, and I kind of wish they'd done more of that aspect of it because it was really strong when it happened and then it just got it got dropped, I felt, a little bit early. But it was it, all of those different parts add up really well. And uh, again, it's, it's a very relevant film right now. There's people being held in cages, separated from their kids, and the government wiping out communities in the heartland with little care for uh, humanity or little care for the populace. So well worth a watch, slept on, way better than your typical remake. Not quite at the level of the Hills Have Eyes remake where it's just absolutely bananas and, and so, so good. But it's up there. It's definitely worth a watch. Check out The Crazies from 2010. On day 19, I checked out The Asfix from 1972. It's a British film, and you can stream it on Shudder if you have the Shudder streaming service, which also is you can access through Amazon. Uh, this was a hard left turn from everything else I'd been watching. It's so, so stuffy and so silly. Uh, it's so very British. Uh, it's... It, it, they're very posh in this movie. Everyone's so very posh, but they're also so very serious and earnest that you buy in. This is a very quintessentially British movie. It's like early Hammer. Uh, and the movie is, I can describe it like a late 19th century Ghostbusters. They even have it down to their version of the beam and the trap. It's a couple of just painfully upper class British guys trying to capture the spirit that takes away your soul when you die and they completely bungle it the hell up and it's not a comedy by any stretch but they just do the dumbest damn things I'm, I get I was totally sold on the premise at a certain point because of the acting because these guys are such good actors but then they just do the dumbest things that just made me literally scream out loud at my TV what are you doing how do you they're talking about how uh, much they've thought through the process they're going to go in this experiment they're going to do and then they they missed the most basic basic in, in, insane thing it, it was pulling my hair out on this movie uh, how do you forget that you need two people to capture the critter and one person won't be able to do it uh, you know oh one person to run the beam one person to run the trap how do you forget one of those people and then there's just a ridiculous lack of safeguards and double checks. It was that part was really, really frustrating. Uh, just screaming at the screen at silly, silly little little Lord Cheekbones, uh, which is what I called Robert Powell, uh, who you might know as Jesus of Nazareth from the late 1970s. Uh, and then, of course, Papa Puffyface. This is what I called the other main character, who was played by Robert Stevens, who actually, if you research, is actually one of the greatest British actors. Uh, in history, he was 
supposed to be the next Laurence Olivier, and it never really happened because mm, he liked the booze. And uh, if you want a bit of rel- like relationship to modern times, a lot of people know Maggie Smith right now. She's become very famous. Well, he was Mr. Maggie Smith at the time this was filmed, although they did divorce a year or two later. Uh, and yeah, he was a renowned Shakespearean actor, and you can tell when you watch this movie because he and, and Adams uh, are the only reason that this works uh robert powell they're they're the only reason why this works is because they make you believe because they are such good actors and everything else that's happening around them you can okay i'm i'm in i'm because because they are convincing me but uh it doesn't always work and uh, it's a fairly silly plot overall but uh but it's worth a watch as a curio as a curio of the times and I'm not sad I watched I've definitely seen worse this year looking at you howling three so check out the Fix if you want a strange little British film from the 70s but uh, day 20 I went way back and got in my pre-1949 movie with the old dark house from 1932 also streaming on Shudder it's like its title says. It's a group of strangers that get trapped on a dark and stormy night in a creepy old house with a weird-ass family. They have the scaredy-cat brother, you have a bitchy sister, you have deathbed dad, and then you have Boris Karloff as their drunken beast butler. And then there's somebody else who may be locked up on the top floor for good reason. It's spooky. Uh, this is a great movie from the era. I, I had... I hadn't checked it out before, but it's very influential, and you can see how influential it is when you watch it and realize that this was done in 1932. There's a lot of old dark house tropes. I mean, even the name of the movie is the name of a trope. Uh, There's a lot of tropes this movie invented, and at the same time, while it's inventing them, it feels like it's it's spoofing them. It's It's a very fun, light movie for a lot of its runtime, uh, which is strange because the tonal shifts happen very abruptly and it may just be the amount of time that's passed between when this movie was made and now that makes it difficult to really relate to what the movie's trying to accomplish with its balance of comedy and thriller and horror. But uh, it's it's definitely, you can tell what it's trying to do still. You, you do have to pay attention though. Uh, it opens with probably the greatest bit of post-silent film sarcasm I've ever seen. Uh, Raymond Massey and uh, Gloria Stewart are driving in their car, and Raymond is just eviscerating Gloria Stewart. By the way, Gloria Stewart, if you've ever seen Titanic, she played Old Rose, and she is actually she's one of the main characters in this movie. I would have to say, after seeing her in her youth, in her 20s, she's a little bit more of a Charlize Theron than a Kate Winslet. I'm just throwing that out there. But uh, it was it was very cool to see her in her heyday. Uh, you've also got Melvin Douglas in this movie who starts off, he doesn't really make a, uh, he makes a pretty big impression out the door, but he just, he's really fun. He's a really great character in this movie. Throwing down a lot of the vaudeville lines, the yeah-da-da-da, Melvin Douglas, yeah-da-da-da. Uh, part of the, the brilliance of James Whale, who directed this, and you may know him from the Frankenstein movies, uh, Bride of Frankenstein and the original Frankenstein. Part of Wales directing that's brilliant, besides the atmosphere, is he he lets the actors breathe. And I'm, I'm thinking about Melvin Douglas when I when I say this, and also uh, Charles Lawton, who's in this as well. 
he lets the actors breathe. He, he sometimes lets them show these character traits that are much more subtle than the standard broad strokes of the time, which it almost con- it contrasts these details against these bigger blustery performances. It, he's getting a, a more nuanced performance out of some of these characters through his directing, through the, his camera shots, what he chooses to show you. And there's a couple of places where I noticed that, where he would cut to a character that was just, that wasn't directly involved in the scene or, or that didn't have a line. And they would have a moment of, of showing an internal process that was happening that you didn't often see in these films. And it does make these characters feel more human than a lot of the cardboard cutout characters of the time. Again, it is it is kind of all over the place tonally, but I think the eccentricity was part of the fun of this movie. Uh, but I, I think the, the lack of contrast with the spookiness, I don't know if the spookiness really translates as well to modern audiences. There's a lot of stuff that would have been much, much scarier at the time that nowadays we don't even register as being scary at all. So... It's hard for us to get the atmosphere that he's trying to create because it doesn't affect us. We're immune to a lot of this stuff, whether it's the the flashing lightning or the shadow or whatever. It doesn't work on us in modern times as well because we're so we, we've seen too much. We've seen too much horrible stuff just on a, a TV show. Even Sesame Street, I think, would be spookier than some of the stuff in this movie. Uh, one other thing that was cool, Karloff was really actually not even just Karloff there's a few fight scenes in this movie that are really physical they are throwing themselves around uh, and I can't imagine how painful it was to shoot some of these fight scenes more than once or twice because they I don't know if they feel like real fights they're not throwing real punches they're definitely missing but the way they throw around their bodies is very physical and uh, the one with Karloff in particular where he's fighting off three guys is is very very physical and there's another fight scene later that's very brutal uh with the hidden person up in the attic i'll leave it at that uh, the old dark house worth checking out i liked it a lot uh although it you have to go into it knowing it's very much a product of its time back in 1932 and then finally this week on day 21 i picked my ass up took my ass to the theater and checked out the new halloween Yes, it is in theaters right now. It just had a monstrous, monstrous opening weekend. I think its opening weekend was took in more than any of the other Halloween movies had made in total. Uh, I think Rob Zombie's Halloween didn't do as much in its full run as this movie did in the first weekend. So that's bananas and very awesome. And one more reason why people in Hollywood who are in charge of making these kinds of movies need to look seriously at R-rated movies they can make money here's one more here's one more instance of proof of that uh, so yes obviously everyone's going to go see this right now so I will try to avoid any and all spoilers but if you want to hear nothing about this movie skip ahead a couple of minutes because I'm going to mention them some things about it so if this this was very satisfying. I was surprised at how well they did with this. this. There was no way this should have been as good as it was, and it was a very enjoyable movie. Probably the probably the second best movie with Michael Myers in it that's ever been made. I'm I'm come, come at me. 
Uh, there are some great callbacks in it. If you're a fan of the franchise, you will have a lot of things to to be excited about. Uh, between the music, they they bring in Lori's theme at just the perfect cue. There's a couple of callbacks. There's like things like the long take from Halloween Two through the houses. There was a, a little moment <laughs> with the masks from Three from Halloween Three, uh, where I uh, loudly exclaimed in the theater because I was so excited to see them and apparently no one else was because everyone else was silent and I felt like a complete idiot but uh, I was excited because they were in there but uh, there's a lot of similar beats there's some kills that you may recognize from before but they have new twists on them Uh, there are some visual moments that they have subverted from the originals and none of it feels unearned it doesn't feel like cheap hey remember this it doesn't feel like member berries it actually feels like They've earned it, and there's a meaning behind it. Um, Michael himself is more abrupt and more and more vicious than in the uh, original two films. They did a good job in this of keeping him more force of nature-ish and not m- mystical, but he's also somehow still superhuman. They, I think they did a good job of balancing Michael where he is a man, but he's a little bit more than a man as well. There, okay, this is a little bit of a spoiler, but if you've watched the trailer, they do spoil this, so I'm not too worried about it. The fact that they have written out Michael being Lori's brother, they've actually said, no, 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 he's not her brother. Uh, and I actually missed that. I thought that was a bit of a misstep because even though this movie does a good job of making him just get places somewhat arbitrarily like he he will go there because he's led there or brought there he's not hunting Lori specifically necessarily but the fact that he was fixated on her uh it, it makes it more personal it makes it make sense more and in this he's just essentially like an abuser to her there's a personal connection because of the trauma that Lori uh, which by the way Jamie Lee Curtis is fantastic in this I can see what she came back for it. Uh, he is the person that traumatized her, that caused her trauma and has ruined her life. And so that's the personal relationship here, which I understand what they're going for, but I still think the brother connection was uh, w- was more personal and I, and I liked it better. I think with what they're going for here, symbolically, it would have made it more awkward uh, because they are going for an almost hashtag me too kind of abuser situation. And uh, the ending of this film has symbolism that really, really drives that home uh, between some maiden mother crone imagery, some vagina dentata symbolism. Uh, I'm, when you check it, when you see it, you'll see it. You can't unsee it. But uh, there are some really nice unexpected twists. It was exciting the entire time. There were a couple of moments that stretched logic and credulity and credibility a couple of character decisions that I thought were absolutely bizarre and just done just for the sake of having to get from point A to point B, but uh, nothing that was nothing too bad Uh, stuff that I could, you know, raise my eyebrow at, but then just shrug and keep going. I thought it was a great update of a classic slasher style to, um, to, to be able to surprise and still shock and entertain a modern audience. I saw it with the sold-out crowd, and the audience responded very, very well to it. They jumped at the right time. They had some good comedy in this, in this movie that they paced really well with the horror in order to get people smiling, but then also shock them when it was appropriate. Um, 
it definitely felt, if you will, more Blade Runner 2049 than the new The Thing, uh, which they the, the, the prequel thing that they made that was god-awful. This definitely feels more like an honoring of the original while creating its own aspect, its own universe, uh, its own take on where things would have gone if we had just had Halloween 1 and part of 2. So... Uh, I did like that. It, it it did feel like it really was a good co- uh, continuation from that. If I have to nitpick, and I always do, I didn't like some scenes with the directing. I felt like there were moments where they didn't have all the shots they needed and they had to edit around it. And if you see it, you'll see it. Uh, some of the dialogue I thought was goofy. So it's directed by the director of Pineapple Express and you can tell that... Uh, that these guys brought that kind of improv comedy feel to this. The They had some moments where it was genuinely funny, especially with the kid that's being babysat. Uh, and like, as I said, it does help give those beats between the tension moments, but honestly, there's other scenes where it just feels really obtrusive, and frankly, it's not going to age well, and it's not entirely welcome in this kind of movie. I felt like they could have had comedy moments, uh, more earned ones, and not gone all the way into this Judd Apatow land. And as a, as a result, some of the, the directing felt uneven. It felt like some scenes were created uh, in a vacuum from the rest of the movie. I think the whole opening bit before the credits felt like it was created completely separately from the rest of the movie, and it might have been. But again, overall, way better than expected. Uh, I think this is the number two Halloween movie now uh, that involves Michael Myers. Halloween 3 is an exception. Uh, of the Michael Myers movies, this has got to be number two. Uh, number The actual number two has to be, a, I think, a hair below it only because the middle section of it just kind of falls flat. And then Rob Zombie's first shot at Halloween is below that just because I don't agree with the way that he humanized and tried to psychologically profile Michael Myers as a kid and as an adult. I thought that was ridiculous and unnecessary and really took away the mystique of the character so um so yeah fantastic worth a watch go check it out it is in theaters now as you probably know by the ubiquitous marketing so that's it we are up to number 21 i have 10 more to go and i will be covering those next episode in a big blowout gala on part four of this show but in the meantime I had asked the listeners to tweet me what their scariest scene in horror movies was, the moment that disturbed them or freaked them out the most, and I got some great responses. So let me read those off really quickly from The Jackal, which is spelled in complete leet. I'm not even going to try and say how it's actually spelled. He said, The scene from the ninth configuration with the astronaut on the moon, and there's Jesus nailed to the cross there. He said the scene is pretty eerie. And then he also said, Alone in the Dark, 82, when... The fatty child molester to boot only finds the little daughter home alone and tries to convince her to come and play. Uh, Going obscure with those, but definitely a couple of very chilling scenes. Joel Kaufman wrote me and said, Decapitated head turning into a spider in John Carpenter's The Thing. No doubt. All time. That that whole scene, that whole surgery table scene with the uh, the paddles and everything is just an all-time classic. Although I will say as a kid, the dog scene in the thing messed me up way more. The dog coming apart just that that burned into my brain from a young age. Uh, Eric Elledge, welcome over from Busted Wide Open, my man. Uh, he said, when Jason puts the person in the sleeping bag, 
and bashes it into a tree. My question is, which one? Because I know he did it. He did it again in Jason X, which was a fun one and a little bit more graphic. By the way, if you like that, uh, Eric, check out a movie called Prophecy. It's the mutant bear movie, which might have the greatest sleeping bag kill of all time. Hands down. I think, I, and I hate to say it, but I think it, put Jason, it puts Jason's sleeping bag kill to shame. Check out The Prophecy. I think it's just Prophecy. The Prophecy is the Christopher Walken movie. Uh, Greg Barron wrote me and said, The squeal like a pig scene in Deliverance was scarier than any horror movie, followed by Is It Safe in Marathon Man. Yeah, a couple of non-horror movies per se, but definitely horror scenes. And if those, movie, if those scenes don't get under your skin then you have a stronger constitution than I because both of those scenes, I got goosebumps even thinking about them. I'm not a fan of dentistry. Uh, so that scene in Marathon Man with Laurence Olivier. <laughs> uh, let's see. At Pete Gott said the shower scene from Psycho. And finally, Gary Bishop wrote in and said, not a horror film per se, but a horrific moment was when Amy casually cuts Desi's throat as they're having sex in Gone Girl. He thought it was a great film, but he's never been able to watch it again. A very chilling moment indeed, uh, and I, I can understand why that would stick with him. If you would like to have me read your tweet on air, go ahead and tweet me, at Sir Ian Dangerous or at Skinless Wonder, and let me know what movie moment freaked you out, disturbed you, scared you the most, stuck with you long after you watched the movie. Preferably the scene specifically that you remember most, like when you think of the scariest scene or the worst scene you've ever seen, like it's the one that gives you goosebumps to think about, that's the one I want to know. And of course, stay tuned because next episode at the end, I will be revealing mine. I'll reveal the one that I thought freaked me out the most. And I guarantee it's not what you expect. Uh, I did also do a Facebook poll uh, for scariest moments. I had a ton of responses from that. So I'm going to be revealing the, uh, the results of that next week. And I will say one of the Facebook responders did actually mention my moment, so I guess I'm not alone, which is nice to know. But in the meantime, we got to get to my top 10 Halloween movies of all time. Now, this is the top 10 movies to watch that, personally for me, get me in the mood for the season more than any others. Now, they don't necessarily have to be about the holiday itself, though it does help, but they just have to get me excited for this time of year. So, And again, this is a pretty personal list, so feel free to tweet me with ones you like or ones you think that I should have included or ones you think are excellent excellent Halloween season movies. I would like to know that as well, and I'll probably read those off next week as well on our big blowout final show. So here we go. My top 10 Halloween season movies of all time, the movies that get me jazzed for Halloween. Number 10, House on Haunted Hill, the original with Vincent Price. I had to comb through all the Vincent Price movies to pick one because I love watching Vincent Price and Hammer this time of year. Uh, I hate to say it, but there's no Hammer movie that made this list, which is absolutely insane because I've got like eight <laughs> that I would watch around Halloween. It always gets me in the mood for this time of year. But I went with House on Haunted Hill. I watched this literally every year in October with Vincent Price whether in the colorized version of the original better black and white version, this movie just screams spooky ooky this time of year, creepy old dark house, the witch in the basement, the skeleton puppet. It's all magnificent, and it always gets me jazzed up for Halloween. Number nine, 
unsurprisingly, I have a lot of Carpenter on this list. Number nine is Carpenter's original The Fog. And this movie is also very much this season for me because of the mist and the fog and the great score and the cast and the, the ghosts. Everything about this is just so atmospherically Halloween-y to me. Even though there's, you don't really have a pumpkin in this or anything, it, it does really feel like the season to me uh, because a lot of the, the things that are in this movie, uh, I love the fog. Number eight, this is where I would have put one of the uh, the Hammer movies, uh, somewhere around this section. Uh, you know, whatever whether it is the, the Taste the Blood of Dracula or any Christopher Lee Dracula movie or any Peter Cushing movie, you know, any of the Frankenstein Must Be Destroyed or any of those, uh, I could easily have plugged in here. But I went with Hexen of all movies, which is a really old, old, old silent film. That uh, and it's spelled H A X A N, and it's actually streaming on a few services right now. If you want to check it out, it's a very odd movie. It starts off being almost documentary style about uh, witches and black sabbats and witchcraft in general, uh, but it ends up being a recreation of a a a, a, a black sabbath, and. Uh, it's absolutely insane. Some of the creepy effects that they use from the time still hold up today and are really, really, really cool. And it's just an atmospheric movie I like to put on in the background. Uh, it is a little bit of a slow watch if you want to actually sit down and watch it. But in terms of atmosphere and just having something on that just feels creepy, this is a great one for it. Again, H-A with an umlaut, X-A-N, Hexen. Uh, number seven, I had White Zombie, Bella Lugosi's White Zombie, one of my favorite old black and white movies, probably my favorite Bella Lugosi movie, because I love his character of, of Murder Legendra, and I've, I, 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 obviously there's a lot of things about this movie that have not aged well, including the colonialism, but I, I, I love this movie, it's one of the ones that I put on and I feel like, ah, it's that time of year again, it's time for horror. Number six is another one like that. It's called Black Sunday. It's a uh, Mario Bava film from 1960. And if you haven't seen it, it's uh, you have to watch it. It's the reason that he, you know we, we have Mario Bava and we have Italian cinema because of the things he did in this movie. So ahead of its time in a lot of ways. So creepy. Another witch movie. But another one with just incredible uh, scenery and visuals and atmosphere. Another one you can throw on the back of any party or gathering that you have for Halloween. Or if, like me, if you work at a bar, you put this on in a bar and people will just be like, ooh, what is this? This is creepy and cool. Black Sunday just always gets me in the mood for this time of year. And then now we're going home with the top five. These ones are ones that I watch every year and sometimes multiple times a year. Uh, at number five, Return of the Living Dead. And this one goes without saying, it's an all-time classic. But for me... This has so many elements that I always think of when I think of Halloween and horror. It's one of my favorite movies of all time, let alone one of my favorite Halloween movies. Whether it's the score, the incredible 80s punk and rockabilly score, uh, whether it's the acting and the characters and the fun that everyone is having, the incredible effects, where it ranks in zombie movie history, how influential it was, how funny it is. And how gory and how cool the effects are in this movie. This is just one of the all-time great horror movies. And 
it's it's like giving me a shot of adrenaline for Halloween watching this movie because I get so excited about about everything that's in this movie. Number four, you knew it had to be here. The original, the OG, Halloween, the original Mike Myers, John Carpenter movie, between the score, between the pumpkins, between Mike Myers, between the slasher tropes, all of it, Halloween is the season. It just is. Even though it's it's there's not much about it that has to do with the season. Otherwise, other than it takes place on Halloween, it could have been any slasher movie before that. They just set it on Halloween. And now it's just one of the greatest Halloween movies of all time. It just is. Number three is Pumpkinhead. And Pumpkinhead is, I, I know it's a little bit left field, but between the fact that, that you actually do have a pumpkin patch in this movie and the main critter, Pumpkinhead, is just such a cool design and is executed so well. This movie feels like a, just a gnarly little fairy tale, like a fable. And it's such a beautiful looking movie. It's shot so well. Uh, in in such a, a beautiful style, stylized in some of the some of the parts, other parts it, fe- it feels very real. So you feel like you're descending into some of these scenes where it's almost another world. I love Pumpkinhead, and it always gets me hyped for the season, uh, especially because of the ending. And the if if the ending with the with the misty pumpkin patch doesn't get you all riled up for Halloween, then you are dead inside. And number two, a modern one. Trick or treat, trick or treat specifically, which is one that when I when it first came out, I didn't think I'd like. I wanted to hate it. No, it is it is a classic and is an all time great Halloween movie. This one is all about Halloween, the celebration of the season, uh, all the little details about the season, whether it's the candy or the pumpkins or the costumes or the you know all the different monsters from the season: werewolves, vampires, demons, ghosts. All of them are represented in this movie and done in a really, really fun old EC Comics way that makes you think of Creep Show uh, or or any of those kinds of movies. It's just so much love of horror movies and the season packed into one hour and forty minute film. It is a ton of fun. I love watching this movie, and it just brings a big old smile to my face when I think about it and the Halloween season. And finally. My number one movie of the Halloween season, the one that gets me the most psyched for Halloween, the one that I watch every year religiously without fail, and that is Halloween 3. And I know I've mentioned it a few times in the show today. If you have not seen it, it is not with Michael Myers. It is a movie that they were making because after they killed off Michael Myers at the end of Halloween 2, they thought they were going to go make the franchise into an anthology series. And every year on Halloween, they were going to put out a movie called Halloween with a subtitle underneath it. So, for instance, this one would have been Halloween 3, Season of the Witch. So this movie technically should more appropriately be called Season of the Witch because it has nothing to do with Michael Myers. It's a whole separate plot and, frankly, would have been completely acceptable as a standalone weird 80s film, weird 80s horror film. It is so goony and so out there, but at the same time, it takes itself so seriously that you completely buy in, you go with it, and it's a ton of fun. It has some gnarly, gnarly stuff in it. Um, two of the gnarliest kills I can think of from the 80s. And honestly, it's it's also got Tom Atkins. So what else do you need? He's the man, and he is the man in this movie playing a not entirely relatable character, but he makes him so charming and charismatic you kind of have to. The Irish are the bad guys. There's 
these weird masks. It's just awesome. It's all about this time of year. It has one of my favorite Halloween speeches. The bad guy gives his little monologue about where Halloween comes from. And it's one of my favorite things about Halloween is to hear that monologue. That's how I know it's time for the season when I watch Halloween 3. So those are my top 10 Halloween movies. I will give some honorable family-friendly mention to Hocus Pocus, Adam's Family, Beetlejuice, of course, Nightmare Before Christmas. Those are all ones that are great for the season. If I'm if I'm around people of the more uh, sensitive demeanor, I can pop any of those four in and uh, in, enjoy myself and have a good time with the season as well. But uh, yeah, it's almost time for Halloween. And matter of fact, I think by the time I talk to you all again, it will have been happy Halloween. So a happy Samhain to all of you. That wraps up our show for week three. Thank you again for joining us. We just have that one more show to go in this four-part marathon and 10 movies left to cover. Uh, I still have to watch at least, let's see, one other foreign language film. And I am still missing my movie to represent the 2000 aughts. So I got, I got, I still got to fit some stuff in here. So come back next week and see if I pull it off. Uh, and make sure to subscribe to get the next episode as soon as it comes out. And tweet to me uh, with any comments, questions, miscellaneous, misdirected, vitriol at Sir Ian Dangerous or at Skinless Wonder. And also tweet me your scariest movie moment. I will read it off. Uh, I'll read off all the ones I get as well as the Facebook poll next week and another top 10 list. So yeah, it'll be a lot of fun. It'll be a big blowout. Happy Halloween. And we will see you next week right here on Horror.